and welcome to the Trap One Podcast. Long-time listeners will note our recent format change. This week we are Trap Once Upon Time. I'm Jason, your second string host. I'm joined today by a terrific panel of mine, of yours, well, of ours. I'll ask my panelists to clock in. Well, hello, I'm Cy, and I'm going to go because everyone else paused there for a moment. So, hello, everyone. (laughs) That's the power of editing, you know. Hello, uh, I'm Joe, um, and I'm absolutely delighted to be here on track one, uh, enthusing madly about Jodie Whittaker. Hi, I'm Lucy, and I'm still relatively new to podcasts, so I shall probably talk over people and generally make a nuisance of myself. That means you've been paying attention to the way that I work on podcasts, so that's good. And we're here today to discuss Doctor Who Flux, also known as Series 13, Chapter 3. This is a big episode for us, Season 13, Episode 3. The last time Doctor Who reached Season 13, Episode 3, the story was Pyramids of Mars, which is a consensus choice for one of the greatest of all time. Um, excuse around. me, excuse me, can I just say something? You say that's oh. a consensus choice. Um, I happen to know that somebody on this panel today doesn't like that story very much. Who on my panel doesn't like Pyramids of Mars? I'm well, just leaving now. <laughs> <laughs> that's episode good, but it falls apart at the end. It is a there top we go. That's enough of contentious issues. <laughs> it was top 20 in the last DWM poll. Everyone speaks yeah. of Pyramids of Mars and hushed tones. Oh, what the fans know. Fan, fan wisdom, honestly. <laughs> uh, I can see it's going to be a long, long episode. Oh, you know it. <laughs> so this time around, the story is Once Upon Time, the first of two middle chapters of a single six-hour season-long story. Now, if you guys have exceptionally long memories, you'll know that Doctor Who has done a six-hour story before, and that was the Daleks' master plan of 1965 through 1966. The first hour of master plan, episodes one and two, was a tightly knit story set on Kimball. The second hour, episodes three and four, was a gut-wrenching tale of heartbreak and loss as we say goodbye to Brett and Katarina. Then in the third hour, episodes five and six, things started to get goofy with invisible aliens called Visians on the planet Myra with a downright trippy spacewalk sequence and a weird comedy subplot where Steven Taylor got encased in a magnetic field while wearing a corduroy blazer. In other words, it can be hard to sustain the action once you get to hour number three of a six-hour story. So for the rest of this episode, we're going to break down Once Upon Time and we're going to see if Chris Chibnall could improve over the far-out space nuts hijinks on the planet Myra. Let's get to the panel. Uh, we're going to start with Simon and then Lucy and Joe. Briefly, what I want to hear from each of you in turn, how sold were you on Flux just after episodes one and two, and what were you hoping to see story arc-wise in chapter three? Wow, that's a big question to start us off. Um, I've really, really loved this series so far. It's been fantastic, and feels like a real step up for the Chibnall era. So where we've had sort of fairly linear storytelling before, we're now going all over the place and he's introducing plot strands that he's not coming back to straight away. And uh, I, I 
been loving that. It it feels very old school Doctor Who that you've got things set up that you don't get to for quite a while, but they're they're sort of um, they're in the background and you're always thinking in your mind, well, what's going on with that bit? How is this going to link up with this? What's going on here? So I came into this episode after the Sontaran story. I think expecting um, a big Cyberman story, that seemed to be how it was being sold to us. That this was the the Cyberman episode that they were going to be, it looked like they were going to be marauding around, stomping around ships, looking fantastic. So I love that new design. And that wasn't quite what we got. Lucy, how about you? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I didn't really know what to expect. I should possibly or possibly not admit that I, I haven't watched much or any of the 13th Doctor's adventures so far. Um, up until now, this is my re rejoining um, current Doctor Who and thoroughly enjoying it, actually. Um, I like the structure of a an extended story. I'm slightly worried there might still be parallel universes in there, and I hate parallel universes. Um, but up until now, I've, I've really enjoyed it. I like the way that the characters are being set up and then sort of slightly put to one side and then coming back in again later on. So you get a sense of like being reminded of what's of what you saw in the first episode where everybody was introduced. Um, I love that there's a grumpy space dog because <laughs> um, I'm a simple creature who loves a grumpy space dog. Um, yeah, I really like it. I, I've really, really enjoyed it and found it worked well. And I didn't find it as I watched it on catch up because I was out on Sunday night for the first time in about two years. Um, but I looking at sort of twi Twitter um, about it afterwards and various people saying, Oh, it's really confusing. And I didn't understand this. And I don't know whether it's just that I'm missing <clears throat> some of the references that other people are picking up on all the sort of, the hints and ideas that other people are picking up on, but I actually didn't find it that confusing. Um, but no, I liked it. And Joe, I saw the look on your face when Lucy admitted she hadn't been watching the 13th doctor. And I thought we were going to lose you to a cardiac event, but now that you've recovered <laughs> from that, that is absolutely uh, a life choice. And you know, you have missed out on some fabulous Doctor Who, Lucy. I've, I would suggest at some point in the future, check out series 11 and 12. Do not listen to what the fans are saying, or some fans. Okay, so um, it, was, it wasn't really a life choice. It was more of an accident <laughs> that I just sort of stopped watching, really. Um, I think I'd had various... Um, I watched... Oh, the episode where Peter Capaldi spends the entire episode punching his way through an iceberg, and um, just that's thought, a fan favourite, you know. Uh, yeah, not not one of mine, I have to say. Um, <laughs> and kind of, uh, yeah, my interest waned a little after that. But I'm, I will happily catch up. And oh, so so far in the first ten minutes of this Trap One episode, we've had people taking a run at Pyramids of Mars and taking a run at Heaven Sent, which is also a consensus choice for greatest of all time. Uh, if we hang around too much longer, somebody's going to start criticizing Craves of Androzani, I think. But um, like for for my part, I I was messaging people and basically giving this um, a three word synopsis before the episode aired, and that was I think this episode is basically time is fucked. 
that was what I was expecting from this episode. Because at the end um, of the Sontaran episode, where he was clicking his fingers and they, they did this huge exposition scene uh, with that floating triangle saying, these people, they're basically um, responsible for time in the universe. And, and that's all being disrupted. They started murdering them. And I figured, okay, so we're heading into, I thought, like Lucy said, a parallel universe territory. That's where I thought we were going to go. What he did instead was something very different from that and a lot more ambitious than that. Um, but I think he managed to tell a story with loads of disparate threads and lots of different memories and a ton of exposition very clearly with lots of kind of like visually stimulating things happening. I, th I thought it was uh, super, super good. Yeah. So uh, Simon raised an interesting point. He thought this was going to be an episode about the attack of the Cybermen. I think I mentioned this when we did the preview breakdown, Ross and me here about a month ago. We've had a lot of rampaging Cybermen episode over the last five or six years because we had Death in Heaven and Dark Water in 2014. We had uh, World Enough and Time and uh, The Doctor Falls in 2017. And then, of course, we had Ascension of the Cybermen and the Timeless Children in 2020. So that's an awful lot of Cybermen. And I'm kind of glad that we didn't get a Cybermen-specific episode because we've seen a lot of that. Uh, there wasn't really a clear big bad in this episode the way that you had the Santarans in episode two, but I think it's to the episode's advantage that it was not just another Cyberman story. But to come back to what Joe said, there were a lot of plot threads and there were a lot of balls in the air being juggled. And I walked away from the episode the first time loving it. And then I watched it again last night in preparation for this recording and I loved it even more. It was confusing to me because according to a lot of the online reviewers that I've seen, for example, people in my Facebook feed, including some pretty high-name fans, even if I do say so myself, and looking at the Wikipedia page, a lot of people found uh, Once Upon a Time challenging or disappointing. So I want to make sure that you guys, my panel, are paying attention. So we're going to play a game. Right. And this is borrowed from the NPR weekly quiz show, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, in a new segment that I like to call Guess the Limerick. So, Simon, we're going to go with you first. Here's your first limerick. The 12th Doctor liked his guitar licks. The 3rd Doctor did fancy car tricks. A young woman named Belle, on her journey through hell, had to evade lots of... Daleks! Very good. Oh. <laughs> that is so right. easy. It might yeah. better be as easy as that. <laughs> Probably. All right, Joe. Here's yours. The 13th Doctor is after the truth. She's had to become a time sleuth. On the planet of time, she uncovered a crime and discovered she used to be... Ruth! All right. So far, we're two for two. Oh, Lucy, this new season is far from a slog, though some viewers are dazed in a fog. But we all can agree he's got some pedigree. Carvinista is quite a big dog. All right. Dog? Three out of three. <laughs> 
I mean, they weren't, they weren't the most challenging lim- limericks in the world, <laughs> were they? Let's be honest. You did well to find lots of rhymes for Daleks, really. Yeah, well done. <laughs> well, the panel has been crushing it, so now we're going to move on to questions of more serious substance. Uh, Flux Chapter 3 did, a, as Joe indicates, an interesting job of juggling returning characters and villains and advancing the storyline while answering old questions and posing some new ones. I want to talk about Belle, who had a vivid introduction on Sunday as a mysterious survivor with a single-minded mission to reunite amidst the wreckage of the Flux with the love of her life. She evades Daleks single-handedly takes out a platoon of Cybermen while out-logicking them to death. That's a feat that evaded Peter Davison's Doctor in Earthshock, by the way. And Belle just generally convinced me that I need to move to County Down yesterday and listen to her accent all day long. So starting with you, Simon, and going across, on a scale of one to Katie Manning, how awesome was Thaddea Graham in Chapter 3? Oh, she was definitely an eight, I think. Yeah, she was just really cool. I I warmed to her straight away because, again, the episode was wrong-footing you from the start because you jump from the cliffhanger to a completely unrelated character that you weren't expecting to meet. We had no idea this character was on the way. And, um, yeah, she just instantly um, was just really, really likeable. Um, it's a really lovely performance um and yeah i like her single-mindedness and i like the fact that you didn't know what her single-mindedness was all about to begin with it was a slow burn that she was doing this for the love of vinda which quite honestly wouldn't we all oh man he is so hot, honestly. Sorry. <laughs> we'll come back to him, but uh, Joe, what was your reaction to Belle, and how do you think she handled the feat of basically coming on the series for the first time and having to anchor every scene by herself without the Doctor or any of the regular cast to play off of? I'm going to disagree a little bit on this point because I mean, I give, I give her introduction like a five maybe because um, I know she had a very important role to play because she was there to explain what the universe is now with the, with like all the changes that the flux has made. So, so she had an important role to play, but it was only within those scenes where we had endless Chibnall exposition of which something I have discussed much on on my podcast with Sai actually in the past and um that kind of like constant voiceover like if this was a movie we would just be experiencing those scenes without that voiceover because this story has got to get from a to b in this she's like there's a constant voiceover telling us everything that's happening around her whereas that's not happening in any other scenes in this in this story i don't know i just i just felt like there was a lot being explained to us in those scenes rather than us actually experiencing those moments. Thaddea Graham does not write her own dialogue, though. This, that's Chibnall's dialogue. In terms of setting aside <clears throat> Chibnall, how do you think she performed? Yeah, she was okay. What, what was especially compelling about her, though? Like, she was, you know, a, a, a competent woman going around in a spaceship looking for, you know, like, like there wasn't anything especially memorable about her, though, was there? Ooh. 
We're going to have some words later. Okay. Simon, you were going to say something and I trampled over you? Yeah, I, I, I was just going to say, I I thought um, the monologuing was more that she was recording all her experiences as she went along with her little Tamagotchi. <laughs> oh, um, yeah. And um, just talking to that and recording that so that it was recorded for Vinda if anything happened to her. So he might find that and get that transmission. Oh, don't get me wrong. Like, like he, he found a creative reason for her to deliver all that exposition, but it was still a ton of exposition regardless. And, you know, like I, I always feel like you should experience, like the rest of the episode, you are experiencing what they're going through. Um, in in like uh, like visually and in extended dialogue scenes, whereas with hers, you're just being told and told and told all the time, and I just think that's less interesting, really. But I'm not saying those are terrible scenes. Like they, um, you know, certainly in terms of set pieces and visuals, those scenes were incredible, and her performance was really good. Um, it was just probably my least favorite part of the episode, and you know, I'm the biggest person. You know, I'm a huge. Um, <laughs> You know, love is my thing. You know, I've got the biggest heart in the world. So the fact that that this is essentially a love story for her, I I quite like that at the end. Um, I just thought it was a, it, it took a bit of a long time to get there, but that was kind of like my only complaint with the whole episode. I think. And Lucy, how about you? How did you take to Bell's story? Oh, I, I liked it. Um, I'm not especially keen on romantic subplots, but I'll, I'll, I'll allow this one. Um, no, I thought it was fine. <laughs> I also thought that perhaps it was that it was, we don't really know. I know it seemed like a lot, but we don't really know how long it's taken her to get to where she is now. So the flux struck at some point and the doctor and companions are sort of pinging backwards and forwards in time and space, but presumably it's taken her a little while to get through the Dalek zone and the Cyberman zone and the the other zone um, to get where she where she is. So I, I got it. I, I imagined it as we were sort of dropping back to her at various points in in a story that was perhaps taking longer than the immediate story that we were engaged in. I, I did like about the I did like that the that the big the big baddies were sort of because what's happening is really really serious because yes time is indeed. But um, it, it's like it throws their sort of everything into perspective because the Cybermen are all stomping around and the Daleks are all zapping things and Sontarans are wanting to ride horses in the Crimea. And, and really, when it comes down to it, that's small beans compared to what's actually happening. Isn't it great, you know, that the, uh, I, I always used to complain in the past about Stephen Moffat, surprise, surprise, that in it, like his big hitter episodes, he'll shove in all the monsters. Remember in, like Time and the Doctor, <clears throat> that had the angels and the Daleks and the Cybermen, but they all kind of felt like kind of pointless cameos rather than something really compelling going on. That actually Chibnall showed these big races in the Doctor Who universe, all like attempting to exploit the flux. Like there was like a... There was a there was a really compelling reason for them all to be in this, rather than just oh look the Cybermen, oh look the Daleks, you know. Yeah, absolutely. It felt like that's exactly what they would do in that situation: would be cement their um, positions of power and do what they could to to keep themselves uh, build their <clears throat> own sort of uh, power base up. And it's kind of super clever as well, because in the previous episode, we had an entire episode which showed, as Lucy said, how the Sontarans were exploiting the Flux. So it's not like like this episode started and we saw the Daleks and the Cybermen and it wasn't without precedent. You know, we've already seen that uh, as a whole episode. 
So, yeah, I thought that was quite cleverly done as well. What I liked about Belle is that she takes out a platoon of Cybermen on her ship single-handedly, one woman against eight Cybermen. And when the Cyberman who's surviving is trying to outlogic her and is trying to interrogate her, she turns the tables on him and uh, she says, love is the mission, you idiot, and then shoots him again, which I thought was a real stand-up-and-cheer moment. Uh, the part that I didn't get, and this might get explained later, I thought Vinder had been locked in his space station rows for a long time mm-hmm. because he had delivered – what, 21,000 progress reports, <clears throat> but Bella's pregnant and she's not actually showing yet, so that indicates that her part of the story has taken place in less than nine months, where Vinder was possibly on that space station for years. Maybe there'll be a payoff for that, but of course we've only seen half the season so far. Maybe it's like a space pregnancy, which takes nine years. <laughs> you know, and it has yes, been I did wonder about that, but then I decided not to wonder too closely about it. So before we talk about the rest of the characters, let's talk about the format. Uh, Chapter 1 introduced a lot of little vignettes, and Chapter 2 was primarily an episode-long Santaran invasion story. Chapter 3 had a lot of time jumps and then shifts uh, between characters in the same scene. Uh, Lucy, you had been afraid, of course, as you said, that this was going to be a parallel universe, which in the end it was not. How did the format of the episode with the time shifts and the characters changing places, how did that work for you? And then I'll ask the same question of Simon and Joe. It worked once I'd sort of got the hang of what was happening. I didn't understand why they were seeing the faces where they were seeing Yaz's face on Vinda was seeing Yaz's face in his memories. And I understood the doctor trying to push through the timelines and becoming other people. Um, and, and then I wondered if it was just because they didn't want, they wanted to delay her finding out that Carvinista had worked with, with the fugitive doctor. And so that's why they had Dan's face on him instead of his own face. Um, but that may be I may be oversimplifying it, and I'm sure there's there probably is a reason why why they kept popping up in each other's bodies. But that that was a bit I didn't quite see why that worked. Um, but I did like the way that it. I think it was reasonably explained that the Doctor wanted them in their own timelines to hide them, um, and I did like that you got to see more about Vinder. Um, because we didn't know a lot about him to start with, about how he got to where he was, and that set him up as well with Bell's story playing out as well. Um, but, yeah, I found the sort of face-swapping thing a bit a bit strange, and I'm still not entirely sure why that was happening. That may have had to do with COVID and the uh, fact that they couldn't have too many cast members on set at the same time. So that was probably a narrative yes, way of getting I, around I the was, pandemic I was hoping there would be a plot reason as well, rather than just a, an expediency reason. Do you know, though, that I I thought, oh, conversely to Belle, that was the best part of this episode because it gave the regulars a chance, all of them, to play different characters in each of those. And so we got to see just how versatile those actors were. Mandip Gill has never been better than she was in this episode. Those scenes where she was uh, with Vinda Mm. and she's in that kind of like buttoned up tunic 
Mm. I just didn't recognize her. She was incredible. And the scenes of Jodie Whittaker playing the fugitive doctor, like I had actual chills. I was like, my God, this is how she could have been all along in this theory, like in Doctor Who. Um, And I'm not sure I'd want her to be that kind of uh, chilling all the time. But it was a really interesting piece, sorry, Lucy, into an alternative um, doctor. Um, And like essentially like, he starts the episode, doesn't he? In that kind of um, arc of infinity style matrix effects with wibbly wobbly with people mm. flying, you know, flying about in the vortex and give some, you know, crazy technobabble explanation as to how they got out of the, the cliffhanger to the last one and why we're going into what we're about to go into. So he basically says, for magic reasons, this is happening. But then he can do whatever he wants in this mm. episode. And he he doesn't hold back. So he has scenes um, of regulars playing different characters. He has scenes where it goes from day to night. He has scenes which hops locations. He has different monsters coming in and out. <clears throat> and like, I, I, I'm, I thought he out moffeted Moffat in this, in that he wrote this massively complicated, um, like hugely ambitious story. But, kept it very clean and with explanations that that hit at the right point so you knew precisely what was going on throughout this episode i'm not really i don't understand why people are confused by this i felt as if he he delivered enough explanation throughout to make sense of this episode um but essentially this was his i can do whatever i want episode and he just ran with it so joe i have a question for you Oh, do you know? <laughs> wow. Those, I'd, those I would never heard, do that to anyone on my podcast. <laughs> those of you who've heard Joe's other podcasts might recognize my intonation there. So you're talking about how the regulars got to play other characters. The scene where Jodie Whittaker is in the cop car playing Yaz's partner back in Sheffield, and she's talking a mile a minute about it, I still can't figure out what. How funny was that? hilarious in fact um what's happened to chris shibnall this year right every single joke is landing i'm not kidding you like i feel as if he's brought in a comedian or something to um to run these scripts by and be like right is this funny do you remember in the first well, we episode where he brought in a comedian as one of the regulars oh, yes. do you remember the first episode where she's like release oh no maybe i was scottish when i made got these handcuffs release release and every episode has made me and the bit with the um, dan's mum in the second episode where she's like no you never said that i said that you know I, literally i've been laughing out loud throughout not something i've really been doing with series 11 and 12 so, yeah, very, very funny, I thought. And her performance as well it was brilliant. Uh, Simon, uh, same question for you. How did you react to the episode with the time jumps and the character shifts? Did it make sense to you? Was it confusing? Was it perfect? Well, like, um, like Joe and Lucy have said, I found it, once I'd got my head around it from the first time, the first few scenes were quite disorientating where you're jumping about and you're trying to work out what's going on. But once I realised what he was doing with the um, with the regulars playing different characters, and it's not actually them, it took me a while because I was watching the bit where um, they're about to storm the Temple of Atropos, and um, they're all there in their combat gear, and the Doctor's arrived in her different coat, 
clever, a nice little bit of um, business there to show that it's not our usual doctor. Um, once I'd seen that bit and then thought, oh no, hang on, that they're not referring to each other as Yaz and Vinda and Dan. They're not naming who they are. And I thought, no, there's something not quite right here. This is not them. This is not then they're all a bit wrong. So I then sort of tweaked, I think that I've just got to watch this carefully and watch for the clues that, that things are not going on. And then you jump to Yas being in the house with her sister, which was a another fantastic scene. And then suddenly her sister was the doctor and Dan's disorientating walk where it was dark, he was in a different location, and then you're jumping around, and then suddenly you think, no, none of this is none of this is quite right. This is all slightly skewed and slightly wrong. And then it sort of clicked, and I thought, okay, I can follow what's happening here. So Vinda, from his point of view, for instance, is seeing Yaz because his timeline is slightly corrupted. He's been thrown back into his past and seeing something he doesn't want to do. But because time is going wrong, he's seeing Yaz as his commanding officer, and then the real timeline is flickering through at times as well. So you'd see the the extra who doesn't have to say a word, which I thought were, was a nice piece of budgetary um, consideration worthy of the classic series, where you've just got someone who looks the part but doesn't have to say anything, and then Yaz can do all the exposition again. And once, yeah, once that clicked, I followed what was going on really well. And then realising that we're seeing mostly the past of our characters here. So we're getting the details that we don't know about them. So we're getting Dan's relationship with Diane, which will become um, probably important going forward. And then we've got, we're finding out why Vinda ended up where he is and more about him and more about him being an honourable person against all the odds and doing the right thing. And then the then obviously the doctor's seeing her past, which is fantastic and a a real surprise. And I gasped when when Ruth turned up in the mirror. It was just Oh, oh my great. god, it's, she's back. Hooray <laughs> But you're right though, isn't it? It's like it's like a, a double whammy, isn't it? Like I saw people complaining that this was like a nothing episode, like nothing really happened and nothing really moved on. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Like on the one hand it's showing you that the universe is F U C K E D because of the fuck oh because of the flux. Oh my god, I'm so sorry. Because of the flux <laughs> Man, I was making flux off jokes before this started. Um, um, so it was showing you the state of the universe, which is in dire straits. And in the same breath, it added context to every single one of the regulars. In like, it, it sketched in huge details. So it was both a uh, in terms of plot and in terms of character, it was hugely substantial. Like, what were you people watching? Yeah, I think people just go in with with weird expectations for things yeah. that it can't always live up to, and they're not always judging it for what it is and what it's done. They're judging it against what they expected it to do, and quite often episodes can't ever live up to that. But I think with something this unusual, like in the way this story is told, is very unusual. It's always going to be divisive, always. Yeah, and I exactly. have heard people be positive as well. But yeah, yeah obviously, we, we haven't had a story structure like this, well, for a very, very long time, really, where 
things aren't sewn up straight away and you've got to keep lots of different plot lines running in your head and try and fit it all together. And you've got to realise that you just need to, to go with it. Well, this is like... let, it, let Run with it and enjoy putting the pieces together without knowing what the picture is going to be at the end. Like this is like Chibnall's wheelhouse, isn't it? This is this is his Broadchurch. Like doing serialized storytelling is probably what he's most famous for. Um, I'm astonished it's taken him this long and a pandemic for him to kind of beat Doctor Who into this shape. Do you remember at the end of the first episode? Um, and I was going, oh my god, there's all these um, you know, tons of plots that have been thrown at us here. Like. Does he have a handle on what this is? And then at the end of the episode, I got absolute chills as he went from one character to another right at the cliff. And I was like, he knows exactly where all of these characters are in this story. Like, he's he's plotted this to the hill. Um, and I think we're in episode three now, and I still feel like he knows exactly where this story is going, where these characters are going. And he's just having a lot of fun with it as, as he kind of goes on that journey. I think this is probably what Chibnall is going to be remembered for most in this era, this flux season. So to build off of what Joe just said, I think the proof of the pudding is in the second viewing. So when I watched chapter three, the second time I was going to afraid I was, I was afraid that it was going to be all style and no substance and it would fall apart on the second viewing. It actually got better on the second viewing. And I'll tell you why. When he's on his date with Diane, a passenger shows up in the background of the scene in silhouette. And the first time through, that sailed past me. I had forgotten passenger from episode two, and I wasn't sure what it meant, and I forgot about it. Then at the end of the episode, you learn that Diane's been captured in the passenger. So when the passenger shows up on their date – Boom. Now it all makes sense. That is another example of the episode being plotted to the hilt, and it pays off tremendous dividends on the second viewing. So that's the mark of a good story, a story that improves the second time around. And this is the first time that I've watched a Chibnall story and and enjoyed it more the second time than I did the first. So uh, I think, Joe, I agree with you 100%. And those who have heard Joe and me on podcasts before know this is a very, very (laughs) very rare rare thing. The most controversial thing we could do is agree with each other. (laughs) (laughs) So, Jason, what you're basically saying is you need to see once, twice. Oh, (laughs) ba-doom. If you consider it twice upon a time... It was a much better story than the original Twice Upon a Time, which (laughs) fell apart on the second viewing. So, Simon, I want to go back to you. Uh, You had uh, talked earlier, and then you touched on it in your response to the last question about Jacob Anderson. So we did get a lot of Vinder's backstory here. You know, we learned who he was, what he was doing in Space Station Rose. We learned about his principles. Now, I don't know if this was intentional or if it's just a coincidence, but here in the U.S., uh, back when Trump was president, we had to survive not one but two impeachment trials. And one of the key witnesses against Trump in the first impeachment trial was Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman, who was – so at the first impeachment trial, uh, Vindman was a, was a key figure. And when he had testified before Congress earlier, he had talked about he was swearing an oath to the Constitution and not one man. That was very similar to what Vinder said 
um, in episode three, and their names are kind of similar as well. Again, that could just be a total coincidence. I don't know how closely Chibnall is following the American politics, but from where I sit, it really can't be a coincidence. But this presents Vinder as a man of tremendous integrity and a man of honor. And Alexander Vindman lost his job in the government, at least temporarily, because he came forward as a whistleblower, the same way that Vinder is shuttled off to purgatory. So that leads into my question. We didn't really learn much about who Vinder was in episodes one and two. This is where we get his backstory. How do we feel about him now, and how do we feel about Jacob Anderson now? Um, I came away from this um, with a much better understanding of who Vinder is, as we said. Um, you get a sense that he's someone who does the right thing all the time, even at the cost to his personal life. Um, he, uh, yeah, it's just a really honourable character, and he's not going <laughs> to sit there and take this stuff from the Great Serpent. He's going to stand there and challenge um, this um, leader um, and call him out. Even well, not necessarily to his face, but he's going to do the right thing afterwards and say, "I've seen this. I've seen what happened, and I'm not going to have it." Someone's got to stand up and say, "This is wrong." Well, those scenes great as well with the Great Serpent. I thought those scenes were really tense. I thought the guy playing the Grand Serpent was terrific. Yeah, there was a real sense of menace, and again, a lot of the episode to me, all everything felt slightly wrong, and yeah. that that scene particularly didn't go where I was expecting it to go. You're expecting a sort of peace treaty. And then when he said, turn off the recording, and this is what I really want you to do, you just feel, oh, hang on, what's going on in this empire? What is this? What's this about? It was doing that wonderful thing, wasn't it, that Doctor Who can do of like adding details of like another story, which actually would be pretty gripping in its own right. And I'm like, I want to know more about this. But yeah, what we get is like tantalizing enough, isn't it? I want to say three things about that, and then I want to cut over to Lucy because we haven't heard from her in a while. Number one, my pilgrimage last night reached Curse of Fenric, parts three and four. And the ancient Hemavor in Curse of Fenric is referred to as the Great Serpent. And in the same night, I watched the Grand Serpent. So it's funny how those stories rhyme. The same way that the Doctor's battle with Swarm is similar to the Doctor's battle with Fenric. We play the contest again, Time Lord. So I like that Fenric and Once Upon Time sort of rhyme, whether it's intentional or not. The second thing I want to bring up is the direction in that sequence. We go from Vinder in the Grand Serpent's boardroom to Vinder in his commanding officer's estate to Vinder in the space shuttle saying his goodbyes to Bell. I don't know if that was in the script or if that was the director, but that was a remarkably confident visual way of storytelling, which I think was lacking for much of Series 11 and has gotten better as we go along. The director's and it's only two directors in season 13, uh, they are crushing it, crushing it, crushing it. And the last thing I want to say is, when I come back in the next life, I want to be the streak of white in Craig Parkinson's hair. <laughs> <laughs> that may have been the best makeup-inspired character touch I've ever seen. 
But uh, Lucy, just to give you a chance to speak again, what did you think of Vinder and Jacob Anderson after episode three? Well, apart from that, I'm old enough to be his mum. Yeah, it's a terrible thing getting older and realizing that you're old enough to be people's mum. I, I, yeah, I, I, I like the character. I like that he is um, appears to be certainly um, an honourable and upstanding character, and to have no kind of side or hidden unpleasantness about him. He seems to be honest and he's he's um he's perhaps although he's presented in in kind of the slightly hand soloy sort of way in his his get up and his kind of slightly um edgy look he's he's sort of quite um he's very by the book the way he introduces himself to Yaz who he's just met and in a strange place and he doesn't say who are you what are you doing here he just introduces himself um so yeah no i like i like him and i like the performance as well it feels he feels very real as a person we talked about this earlier but the flashback scene when the doctor and her crew who were played by her companions in series 13 but are meant to be other people are invading the Temple of Atropos on the planet of time. One of them is probably uh, Lee, who I think was the name of the guy who was Ruth's husband and fugitive of the Jadoon. We don't yeah. know which one he was, probably Vinder. But it was a, another stand up and cheer moment for me when you see that Dan is playing Carvanista, <laughs> yeah. whereas in the previous two episodes, Carvanista and Dan were pair bonded. So that's just another inspired example of writing and we're going to talk about ruth in a moment but how did you like the performance of the regulars in that scene playing other characters marvelous i thought um can i can i very quickly just say about vinda sorry because um uh, and jacob anderson who you know i don't care that i'm old enough to be his dad he's super hot all right and i am old enough to be his dad um but um Okay, I figured that, I don't know why Jacob Anderson's character was going to be a little darker than he is. And actually, he's quite whiter than white, isn't he? And that's adding to Yaz and Dan, who are both also very kind of um, as-they-appear characters. Um, And that would be a problem for me if it wasn't for what they're doing with Jodie Whisker this year who at the end of this episode loses her shit in the most spectacular way. And a lot of people have been saying, like, like Jodie Whittaker's not been given great opportunities. In the Flux season, it's been nothing but opportunities for her. Um, and she's kind of like the dark one in this ensemble now. She's the desperate one. Um, so, yeah, I, I, did, I, I figured he was going to be a little bit more morally substantial, perhaps. Um, but it's not really a problem for me that you've got three kind of very innocent, very good companions, because I think Jodie Whisker's doctor is actually providing um, a bit of a contrast to that. Um, I've forgotten what your original question was. Sorry. It had to do with the regulars playing other characters in the Temple of Atropos. We'll talk about uh, Joe Martin in a moment. But my original point, of course, is... uh, Dan as Carvanista was very, very clever. What did you guys think about the rest of the performances in that sequence? 
Yeah, um, again, I think as Joe mentioned earlier on, I think Mandip Gill was really good. She was very steely, very focused, and um, colder, I think, than Yaz would normally be. Because when I was watching it originally, I was thinking, are we seeing the future here? And this is how their um, experiences with the flux and the changing universe has affected them all. And this is where they end up. This is, they all end up as the soldiers with the doctor taking this on because it's a last desperate attempt. Whereas actually it's not them at all. Um, and you could see, I think, elements of all of them ending up this way under different circumstances. So I found that quite fascinating. Um, yeah, they were all all brilliant and they all played it differently to how their normal characters would be, which is, again, what a great season for giving everyone material to get their teeth into. Do you not think that in if... if... Yaz had just been in series 11 and series 12. She'd be like a liked but kind of forgotten companion for all the for kind of the lack of opportunities she's been given. But because of this flux season and, and you know, the fun that they've had with her character, especially in like the first episode where it was just the two of them and they got to bounce off each other so well. And stuff like, that. like, I think, I think these last eight episodes are absolutely going to make Yaz's character like yeah I'm really pleased she stayed on mm-hmm. so we've talked about how incredible Jodie Whittaker was so let's go back and talk about Joe Martin the fugitive doctor what I liked the best was the way that she was delivering a sentence and then halfway through the sentence she would swap out and become Jodie and then go back to uh, Joe Martin again and they interpreted the same sentence in different ways because you yes. have Joe Martin who is steely and determined and then you have Jodie doing that thing where she gets bewildered in the middle of a sentence and then mm. finds her way, which, by the way, my heart. Uh, starting with you, Lucy, how did you like, uh, number one, the surprise of seeing an unbilled uh, Joe Martin again because she was not on the trailers? And what did you think of her performance in Chapter 3? And how does it inform your take on The Fugitive Doctor? Um, I don't really have a take on her as such. I've I've read the um, the received and unreceived fan wisdom on her, and I'm I'm my my personal jury is out as to where she fits into the whole. Um, are we back in the deep past? Is it before Hartnell? Is it all? I, I'm 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 out on that at the moment. Um, I really liked her performance. She's hugely engaging actress in whatever she appears in, and you can absolutely see her leading her troops into blowing things up and um capturing swarm and azure if you if you were going to put somebody a doctor against them she would be fairly close to the top of the list of the available um people i think yeah i really liked it i liked the way that they um had it as if she was sort of glitching between her and and jody's doctor and the um the so when one of them looked at their when they looked at their reflections they saw each other um and and kind of switched out in the middle of sentences, but yeah, and and I liked that you got from um, Dan Stroke Carvanista that sort of the explanation that something funny was happening. They knew something funny was happening to their doctor that had to do with time because they kept talking about some kind of temporal thing that was going getting to the boss again. Um, so something had been something was up, and what was up was that she was that Jodie was coming back to, into her. So. 
And Simon, how about you? Talk about Joe Martin, the fugitive doctor. Oh, God. She's just brilliant, isn't she? I love her to bits. The one thing that I was a bit upset about was that we did keep cutting back to Jodie, and I wanted to see her facing off against Swarm and Azure. I thought that was her hero moment, and it was snatched away from her and the audience, because I wanted to see that. I wanted to see her defeat um, those two, because that's, that's her thing. And so that was a bit of a pity, I thought. But otherwise, couldn't fault it. I just wanted more of her. I always wanted to see more um, of her. He could have, like, Chibnall has given Jodie Whittaker so many opportunities in this season that that absolutely could have been Joe Martin's moment. And it wouldn't have taken away from Jodie Whittaker this season at all. I think in Fugitive of the Jadoon, Joe Martin comes in and kind of upstages Jodie Whittaker a little bit. But there there was no danger of that happening here because there's so much interesting stuff happening with her elsewhere. I I wish Joe Martin could, like, rather than in The Timeless Children where she turned up in The Matrix for, like, two seconds, and in this where she turned up in a flashback for two seconds, I kind of wish we had another full-length episode with her in. Because um, obviously she's been really popular, and I think Chibnall's like, oh, great, you know, I've got something that people really, really like here, so I'm just going to keep peppering stories with her in it. But I just, I just, I want something substantial with her in it. You know, don't get me wrong; it was amazing to see her here, and I, I, I was in a hotel room with five other geeks, and we all screamed our heads off when she appeared. <laughs> you know, um, so it had the impact that it wanted. Yeah, I'm like, I just want more. You know. Yeah, it feels like we're we're being cheated almost out of seeing her doctor in action other than sort of at the end of Fugitive of the Doom. We haven't really seen what she's like day to day and it's really intriguing. Do you know, she has said in an interview today that was published, it's going to be very hard to get rid of me now. Mm. So I don't know what that means. <laughs> Well, we have six more Chibnall episodes to go. So we have three more chapters of The Flux, and then we have his last three specials before Jodie Whittaker leaves the series. Knowing that we are in the middle of the mystery, and with the 13th Doctor still searching for her past, it is almost an odds-on bet. We are going to see a lot more of the Fugitive Doctor. We are going to get her full story in an episode, possibly the last episode, where all is revealed to Jody. So again, we're halfway through an epic length story. We're going to get these answers. Some of it is frustrating because we don't have it, but we are going to get it at some point. And this will become a fun step on the journey as we watch it again a year or two or 10 years from now. Do you know, right? I know somebody who works uh, somewhere where the last episode was filmed. And I know massive spoilers about that last episode. But I'm telling you anything about that now, right? <laughs> don't want to know. I, I have been spoiler-free this entire season. Mm-hmm. I didn't even know the Sontarans were going to be in it. I've, I've just been keeping my eyes closed. So I'll just say one thing, and it ain't a spoiler. It's going to blow your mind. <laughs> <laughs> well, that'll be a pleasant uh, change from what the Battle of Ranscor of Kolos did to me at the end of Series 11. So I'm looking forward to a good series finale. So, Jason, can I ask you a question? Um when we had the hints um, back in episode one about um, Swarm and Azure being enemies of the Doctor from her past, did you think it would have be it was the fugitive Doctor who 
had had that experience? Was that one of the thoughts that went through your head or was it just this is a random part of the doctor's division pass that we don't know about? I'll tell you what I was thinking. I've been going through the pilgrimage and over the summer when they asked Chibnall to describe the flux season in one word, he said swarm. So when Phantom heard the word swarm, they immediately said Zomg, we're getting a sequel to The Invisible Enemy. <laughs> oh, that would have been amazing. But then I reached State of Decay, which I hit in August as part of my pilgrimage. We're now in November, and the word swarm is a key episode. Yeah. Oh, sorry, the word swarm is a key word in the episode State of Decay. What, what I did thought they do, we were Jason? Get, they I swarmed we get... and swarmed. <laughs> Exactly, Joe. <laughs> Joe does it a lot more theatrically than I would have done. But what I'll say is that I thought – I had in my head this whole scenario. I thought this entire season was going to take place in the dark times and we were going to see uh, the, the past doctor, who I thought was going to be Vinder, take on the great vampires. I thought this was going to be a vampire Ooh. story and that was going to be the swarm. And if you listen to the uh, trailer episode that I recorded with uh, Ross from Gallifrey's Most Wanted last month, that was what I said on the air. And I turned out to be completely and utterly wrong. But I am <laughs> glad that we are going back to the past and we're seeing the Fugitive Doctor. And I assume that Yaz is Gat and I assume that Jacob was playing Lee or whoever the husband was in Fugitive and Dan is playing Carvinista. I'm right in the sense that we are going back to the past and seeing this epic victory from the Doctor's past life. I never pictured in a million years that Joe Martin was going to show up the way that she did playing the Fugitive Doctor. So, How great is it, though? How great that they're doing this sort of long-form storytelling with um, this whole Timeless Children arc, going right back to the Ghost Monument where the Timeless Child was first mentioned, and then through Series 12 where the twist hit about it, and exploring that and now we're going back and actually seeing um like the missions that she went on like i think i think chibnall's a lot smarter than people give him credit for uh and he's not just kind of messing around with doctor who continuity for no reason he's doing it for for an absolute like storytelling purpose and like weren't these things like the best of this episode these the the scenes on atropos um, featuring uh, oh god what are the villains called I know they're called Swarm and Azure but what are they the Ravagers thank you very much they're great by the way aren't, aren't they fantastic well, those villains fabulous I just I, I'm, I, I appreciate why people like to speculate and my word have they been speculating about all kinds yeah. of things working themselves up into a lather about what they're going to hate if it turns out to be something or other that it probably won't be and all the rest of it um but I just am so glad that they are themselves and not going to be another more familiar villain because they're fab. Yeah. I mean, and the acting as well. Yes. Um, uh, the, the main swarm, the, the, the regenerated yeah. swarm. Yeah. He's like, he's got that thing of being like silky and, and kind of scary and really camp as well. Yes, yeah, but absolutely love. terrifying. Yeah. Absolutely terrifying. Both of them are really properly frightening. Um, he's yeah. like, you know, at the beginning, you know, where he's got his, like, it's a POV shot of him from, like, Jodie Whittaker's point of view, where mm. he's clicking his fingers, and yeah. it's kind of like playing it, like, you know what? You know, 
I'm going to have you and then I'm going to kill you. You know, like he played it just brilliantly. I think it's great. He's a little bit of a Buffy the Vampire Slayer kind of monster in that he is urbane and he is versed in pop culture and he's very clever and witty. And I know Buffy the Vampire Slayer seems like an insult now because of what we've learned about Joss Whedon. But it was a very good series when it was on the air, thanks to the actors involved. And if you're going to base your villain kind of like on a Buffy Spike type of villain, that's a pretty good format to use. So I've been very impressed by, I think it's Sam Spruill playing Swarm. He's not gotten a lot of Mm. press, but I think he's one of the many MVPs of this season. Azure, though, as well. I think Azure is really good. Oh, yes. And her makeup is phenomenally good. Yeah, I think they have to, John Bishop said in one of the films, they have to get there at like half past four in the morning to get their faces put on. And then um, the actress was saying that they have to, that when they do their mark out the scenes, they're doing it like in their dressing gowns because they don't want to get anything on the costumes. (laughs) And then they get the costumes on and then they become, but it all comes from the, I mean, the, the, the makeup and the costumes are, of course, fantastic, but it does all come from inside. And they, yeah. it wouldn't be – you could put sort of lesser performances in those and it wouldn't be half as good if it wasn't them. What I liked as well in this episode was seeing Swarm and Azure at the height of their powers, so seeing them in the past, and they're different. They look older um, so because they haven't been regenerated yet. And so the makeup on the face of Azure particularly – or no, um, Swarm particularly – is really different and there's more crystals and there's more more alien and there's a kind of world weariness to the younger <clears throat> is young yeah i'm sorry the old time is all over the place right yes so before he's renewed there's a a weariness in his villainy but then he comes back regenerated and he's mm. suave and moving differently and it's yeah it's an absolutely fantastic performance didn't you think as well that the visual of them sitting by that kind of rock with all the blue lights and that like like this whole season has just been full of like imposing visuals like that although i'm gonna have one criticism about this season too much bloody cgi and i know i know this is probably imposed by the pandemic in that they can't actually film in a lot of places and uh and I think a lot of the CGI has been very, very good, but there was a few moments in this and in a couple of the other episodes where it was a little bit rough. And I think it's where they've had to do loads of effects work in like a condensed period of time. Um, now, don't get me wrong, Doctor Who looks amazingly good, but like there's a reason I love the original Star Wars trilogy over the pre- uh, prequels, and that's because the original one uses a lot of practical effects and the prequels are basically cartoons. And there's a lot of CGI going on in this, isn't there? So let's talk about COVID then. This year has been made under COVID restraints. It impacts the number of performers that can be in a scene. As Joe says, and I was going to make this point before he brought it up before I could get to it. Thanks, Joe. You're welcome. We're getting a lot of green screen because they can't do anything else. We also have a very limited crew. There's a lot of TV being made, and there's only a limited number of crew who can make that TV. So Doctor Who doesn't have access to the number of people they would have had on set in the past. This is almost guerrilla filmmaking, to borrow a phrase that I picked up from Gallifrey's Most Wanted, which used it in response to episode one. 
how do you think the show is handling COVID? When we go back and watch this in 10 years, is it going to be obvious that they were making this thing on the fly with three actors at a time? Or is it going to look cinematic and grand and lush, and we're going to forget that it was ever made during the pandemic? Lucy, let's start with you. Um, I think I think it stands out well. I think I think it's nice to see a program that doesn't constantly remind me that everything's dreadful outside. Because um, when you watch sort of more reality-based, so to speak, things like um, oh, I don't know, detective dramas and things like that, it, it becomes more obvious with the placement of figures and people talking to each other from a distance and all the rest of it, that, that it was filmed under those restrictions. But I think for, for something like this, and, and yes, there were moments when when the the carrot some of the characters look a little cut out against the background a couple of times. Um but I really don't mind that. I mean, perhaps because I've grown up in the era of tinsel and <laughs> <laughs> spaghetti monsters it doesn't bother me that much I, i'm not you know I'm, i I've, I've seen various criticisms not wishing to sort of pick people out particularly but when the um the sontaran ship appeared over liverpool in the pre the run-up to the series it was oh my god the sontaran's here it's fancy oh god that that's a terrible photoshop job well okay whatever um you know it just it, i i don't think I don't think that people necessarily are expecting to be given a free pass for, for doing anything at the moment. But I do think what they've done is admirable, really, because they've produced um, a tight story and script and it's well acted and filmed. And yes, at some points, the effects look a bit cut outy, but I don't have a problem with that. We're used to that, aren't we, after 55 years? So all that CSO, honestly... Do you know what? I mean, it astonishes me, you know. It astonishes me that, hey, Lucy's got an axe on, um, that um, fans can be as ungrateful as they are. Because, like, anyone that's criticising this season is kind of forgetting that the production crew that made this risked their lives to bring us six episodes of Doctor Who, you know? Like... They didn't have to do that, you know, because we're not working during the pandemic and we're just going to keep ourselves safe. No, instead, they actually went out there and made some Doctor Who. And I think there are some of the most impressive production values we've seen yet. The Sontaran episode, I think, is one of the best-looking episodes of Doctor Who we've ever had. definitely. Um, But also as well, I think Chibnall had a chance with Flux because he plotted out a full season... Um, and then had to condense it down. And then he said, he said in like publicity that, you know, we're going to use this to our advantage. So he got another go at a season he'd already plotted out. And it shows, it shows that he's, he's taken a second run at this. Um, and he's written something that's massively ambitious, like probably the most ambitious thing since the series has come back. And that's what we'll remember is the pandemic kind of, not force him into a hole of being hugely ambitious, but actually encouraged him to to do something a bit more exciting and a bit more open than what he'd done in series eleven and twelve. So I think I think the pandemic, for all of its horrors, has worked in Doctor Who's favour. Yeah, I'd agree with that because I think this era has been hugely cinematic in general. It, Doctor Who has never looked as beautiful as it's looked over the last three years um but this year because they can't film abroad they're saving the money 
and they're putting the, that money into the effects work. <clears throat> so you've got Doctor Who looking epic on a mm. scale that it's never looked. So you do suddenly have huge battalions of Sontarans, huge battalions of Cybermen marching, a few wobbly, not terribly convincing Daleks gliding <laughs> around. And they, they, they can't get everything right. But I think in that way, they've used the budget creatively in a way that maybe they wouldn't have done. Maybe they'd have been back in South Africa and using the landscape to make things look epic. Whereas here, it's a bit more contained, but you're using the effects budget to generate that excitement in a way that I don't think Doctor Who has ever quite managed to, to succeed at before. Maybe like a bit more creatively. Rather than yes. just, you know, like you say, having pretty location work, it's like, well, what can what can we do visually that's really, really interesting, like with CGI? And you know, like for the on the whole, I think they've succeeded like masterfully. Oh, without a doubt, I bet this is some of the best effects work we've ever seen in the show. Really stands up well, and I think it will stand up for a long time. I like that point that you all make about the creativity of Doctor Who. I mean, the Pertwee era, the Barry Letts era gets some flack because of all the CSO. And, you know, as Lucy alluded to earlier, if we survive the Claws of Axos and uh, Invasion of the Dinosaurs, as she's holding up right now, <laughs> and as Simon is holding up too, we can survive anything. But the Pertwee era also almost pioneered the location shoot. They went out to those caves to shoot the mutants. Uh, mm -hmm. They went out to the nuclear power plant to film Claws of Axos. They were getting out on the streets in London to film Invasion of the Dinosaurs. The Pertwee era was really when Doctor Who starts to pioneer this trend of location shoot and CGI or CSO location shoot and CGI CSO. Doctor Who's been on location for 50 years. Now that's been taken away from us. And while I don't love all the CGI, I thought the very first scene in Chapter 1 where the Doctor and Yaz are dodging uh, those flying robots um, over a sea of acid, I thought that was a little too much for my eye, and I prefer the stuff that was set in Liverpool instead. And I think Joe's jaw just dropped in disagreement. <laughs> I freaking love that scene on a level I cannot explain to you. Uh, but, but, but not okay. Visually, uh, you, there was a lot going on in that. Yeah, but like, man, oh man, you can't really point at the chip lawyer and say he's having a lot of fun all the time. Like immediately, he was going for the fun jugular with that scene, and I was on board straight away. Yeah, and you get swept along with it because the regulars are selling it and they're having fun. And yeah. so it's very easy as a viewer to be taken on the journey with them. Plus, you know, I don't know why they had that mattress on the floor in the TARDIS, but I'm sure the shippers oh, out there God. are getting very excited. Oh, Bad yes. Man. Yes, indeed. No, but this, this, this season has been visually beautiful to look at, uh, some of the CGI excesses aside. And I think when we look at it in 10 years, we're going to marvel at how good it looks and not say, oh, what a shame about COVID and, and the budget cuts. So... Talking about the TARDIS again, every companion who joins the show gets their own reaction to the TARDIS. If you slot that in from Unearthly Child all the way up through Once Upon a Time, how do you guys rate Vinder's reaction to the TARDIS? What? I was <laughs> laughing out loud. I thought it was brilliant. Yeah, what did you guys think? It was brilliant. 
Well, he's using he's using that fabulous whatever's going on with the TARDIS because time is, you know what, um, and the 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 doors are in the floor, and I just love that. I just think that's so funny and so weird. Um, yeah, so his head just pops up through the floor, doesn't it? So Chibnall's managing to do something completely original with like the, um, Vinda being introduced to the TARDIS. I thought it was really fun. I have one last question about Once Upon Time, then we'll do a wrap-up round, and then I have some announcements. So my last question is this. I have trouble as an American, uh, primarily with my Brooklyn accent. Some of the regional accents from the UK-based actors, I have trouble understanding, and it requires a few rewinds, especially if I'm not watching with captions on. There was a line the doctor is quoting somebody else as saying leap and the net will appear. And I could not figure out what she was saying was the name of the person who delivered that quote. And I thought she was saying jump a ruse, which doesn't make any sense. I then Googled the quote. I paused the episode and I went to Google and I Googled the quote. And it turns out it was an American 19th century conservationist named John Burroughs. And if you were to ask me to caption that scene myself, I would never in a million years have gotten John Burroughs from what she said. Do you guys think that Chibnall is doing a good job of casting a much broader range of regional accents that we've gotten on the show before? Yes. Or this is what the show has always sounded like and I didn't notice because I'm American. I've, I, have actually, I have actually heard, um, and it made me very angry, and I'm not going to point out which podcast this was or who this person was, I heard somebody say that, oh, my God, Doctor Who's become too northern and it's really fucking annoying. Like, what the hell? Like, I think it's wonderful that we're pushing away from the south and we're actually exploring uh, regional areas of Doctor Who. One, because it's nice to go to these places, and two, just because it's a bit different. Um, yeah, I think it's, I think it's great. Just put your captions on and stop whinging, all right? <laughs> I don't, yeah, I don't have a, I mean, I, going back as I have been voyaging back through, um, in a sort of haphazard pilgrimage through, through the years of Doctor Who, I mean, the, the, one of the earliest companions was a Cockney. And, and so when people criticised, um, as they did, um, Billy Piper, when she began as Rose, saying, oh, why doesn't she talk properly? Companions used to talk properly. And I, I saw Ben and thought, oh, really? <clears throat> oh, but sorry, it, I thought you were talking about Dodo. Well, she no. had all the accents. <laughs> <laughs> no, Ben. She the running again. And, and, then, and then Jamie. And then, so it's it's not, um, I, if you're going to have real people, uh, people who are characters who are relatable as to your viewers, then yes, they should come from wherever they come from and be whoever they are. Yeah, I think it's it's a really great step forward. Um, I think having um, a Liverpudlian companion is brilliant, and they should have done that in the 60s at the height of Beatlemania, really. And well, What about what's the face from the faceless ones? It could have exactly. been her. Um, yes, um, Samantha Briggs, um, yeah. Pauline Collins, yeah. Exactly. Um, <clears throat> they've always been a bit behind the curve with this, and it's really nice to have it redressed and not have everyone from London, not have everyone from the home counties or whatever in the UK. There's a lot 
of the UK. I know we haven't got quite as much of the UK as you have of the US, Jason, but there are a huge range of accents and a huge range of people, and it's about time that was that was well, done. Do you remember in um, uh, no, Essential the Sidemen? Yeah, and the time of children when they had all the Irish accents, didn't they? They went off to that was really refreshing as well. I thought. Um, well, hey, Jason. Hi. Jason, do you mind if I hijack this for just one second? Joe, because I like you, you can have five seconds. Go. On. <laughs> Thank you very much. Because I have a question for all of you. <clears throat> um, and that is, well, I just don't know if you're going to mention this, and I need to because it was my favourite scene in the entire episode. Barbara Flynn's character. Oh, yes. Outside of time. How good was that scene? And who the hell is she? Bewildering she, and wonderful. She had to enter a series that she's never been on before, and it's unthinkable that she wasn't in the classic series, given how long her <clears> credits are. <throat> she had to jump in for her only scene and act as if she owned the place and out-act the doctor and put the doctor on the back foot. That is very difficult to do, and that was going to be my last question, and you preempted me. Oh, God damn it. <laughs> so she, Sorry. She was – I had never seen her in anything before that I'm aware of. I don't know her very much. I had to look her up. I had to reverse engineer that her character's name was Awsock and look her up on Wikipedia. What a career she's had that I evidently missed. I thought yeah. she did a phenomenal job, and I cannot wait to see more of her because she has all the answers, and I would love to know. Is but, she a Time Lord? Is she Tech Taeyun? Who is she going to be? And why does she have the Doctor – at such a disadvantage, and what is going to happen when the tables are turned? I can't I, wait to find out. I've seen like really strong actors like um, wrestle with Chris Chibnall dialogue before, sometimes succeed and sometimes fail. She took some difficult lines and turned every bloody one into an event. Like every line she had hit. It was effortless, an effortless performance, and so cool. She's yeah. so cool without being anything with yeah, because she was just so dismissive of what was going on around her. And um it brought to my mind um the White Guardian in the Reboss operation mm. and that early performance there, I was just there thinking, oh hang on, we've seen someone treat the doctor like this before, and we've seen this kind of performance before and i'm probably entirely wrong and um i will hold my hand up when i do trap one on episode six of this <laughs> series and say i guessed wrong but um i felt it was sort of very guardian like almost right down to the about... costume as well in a lot of ways what i was going to say about the sort of smock top that she had and the straw hat and the that the Guardian was sort of wore, well, some of the Guardians wore robes, but there were straw hats, weren't there? There was sort of a, a kind of, that kind of quality about it. And yes. yes, I did. that did come into my mind. And also the sense of being kind of above everything, like, oh, this universe uh, that you seem to care yeah. so much for, rather than the universe, which is our universe, but th this one of many universes and, and one that presumably having sort of, had its chance had been selected for extinction, um, perhaps uh, some some uh, some power or other is intending to um, to have a bit of a, a clear out and sweep away. Um, so whether the flux is created by 
is a created event um, or a natural phenomena that's been harnessed. Uh, but she, she, yes, the way she sort of was, um, yes, just almost seemed to be effortlessly in charge. <laughs> she's she's amazing. Like in the space of like about ten lines, yeah. And again, it is exhibition, but in the space of ten lines, she manages to um, tell us the universe is, you know what. Um, that um the flux is manufactured that it is the doctor's fault like like there's like one twist after another in that in that yeah, scene it's the battle of space versus time yeah like, yeah yeah idea. and then at the end at the end in the brilliant brilliant moment she just goes oh i'm done with you and she just gets rid of her you know i was like come yes, on don't come back here doctor <laughs> yeah don't come looking for me or something like that, wasn't it? Yeah. You're, you, you're gone. Like, she was great. And please, I hope we see her again. Yeah. Oh, I hope so. So, Joe, that'll count as your wrap-up comment, but Lucy and then Simon, give me your final impressions of the episode, anything we haven't talked about, anything else you want to highlight that we haven't gone over in the previous 80 minutes? Um, I don't know. We've covered quite a lot. Um, I... I really enjoyed the episode. I think it's setting us up still well for what's happening. We we were allowed we weren't allowed to um forget characters who have um previously who didn't have such a big role, so we still had our mad tunnel building um Victorian or Edwardian oh, gentleman yeah. who I was running about with a gun shooting. Um Yeah, I love that every time we meet him, he's becoming yeah. more and more unhinged. It's well, brilliant. I mean, it's all a bit strange, isn't it, for him? Really, he's just—he's having a very bad time. Um, we haven't found out what his tunnels are for yet. We're all thinking about all the tunnels that have been before and in the past in Doctor Who and what they've been used for. Um, and how did he know he had to build the tunnel? Well, that will come back. But, but I liked that we were reminded of him. So you know, he wasn't like, oh no, we haven't put him to one side completely. He's still there, <laughs> losing his shit at some unspecified point in the past or future. Um, I liked that the um I particularly liked the the fact that the, the sort of the pointlessness of the Cybermen and the Daleks and the Sontarans was shown up against what Swarm and Azure are doing with time unraveling around them. It's like, oh yep, yeah, there you all are, still shooting at each other, still stomping around the universe, still wanting to run and, and that was kind of yeah, okay, but that's just stuff, isn't it, compared to time running out of control um yep no i really enjoyed it and I, i'm looking forward to seeing how um they rescued diane <laughs> and also how she was selected in the first place does that mean that somebody because that's as you knew who she was she knew her name when she pulled her into the house um, so whether that points yeah. to, and I'm, I'm not very keen on speculating, but whether that points to the fact that they knew that Dan was going to meet the Doctor and that they wanted her for leverage, I don't know. Um, but that will be interesting too. I'll point out that Williamson is a real historical person and yeah. the, Liverpool, the Liverpool tunnels are a real place. So he's not going to be killed off, but I'm sure they're going to tie into that at the end with their theory as to what the Liverpool tunnels are for, but Williamson actually existed. And uh, so did the gentleman in the first episode who was talking to Williamson. I forget the other gentleman, Stonehouse. He's also a real person. 
yeah, it's all all good. I suppose the one thing that we haven't really talked about that's setting up for next week is the um, the angels, and um, don't even little, blink. Yeah, and the little hints that they're <clears throat> corrupting Yaz's timeline, which I think is obviously setting up something much bigger that's to come, and the fact that it is Yaz that sees them, and um, the really quite scary jump cuts where the angel turned up in the calm um, wing mirrors and things like that that um, our friend Fraser mentioned absolutely scared his son to death. Um, and the, the video game as well. Yeah. 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 It's, um, I've, um, just to add to my um, general knocking of Doctor Who classics, I'm not a big fan of um, the episode Blink. I'm the only fan who was left absolutely stone cold by that episode. Um, that's my You're big fired. revelation. And uh, I, I, I'm now leaving no, 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 Doctor no, no. Who fandom. <laughs> but... You can't just come in here and take a run at the Pyramids of Mars and Blink at the same time. <laughs> I <laughs> think that's marvellous that you, you literally slagged off those two in the same episode. Yeah. Um, well, but not every episode. I felt they were... yeah. And Lucy I... went at Heaven Sent. I mean, this is amazing. Yeah. This is the most controversial episode of Trap <laughs> whatever. That's largely <laughs> to do with my problems with philosophy and parallel universes, neither of which mm -hmm. I'm keen on. Fair enough. If you take and, a run in Inferno, and, I am pulling the plug. Oh, no, and do you know what else is truly, right. truly awful? A Christmas Carol. That's a bloody <laughs> dreadful episode. <laughs> I'm really about that. Anyway, um, sorry. I felt the angels were were well used here and were very well shot and quite scary and they played up the tension of those scenes really well and that gives me really big hopes for next week's episode which looks really atmospheric and creepy and odd which is what you want from an angels episode i think don't you think that is the most enticing trailer we've had like that was a fantastic trailer oh do you think he's playing hugo lang again <laughs> may <laughs> my bones rot for suggesting that <laughs> um can i just he make one be... speculation very quickly um i i don't think that bell is pregnant accidentally I know how these long-form stories work, and Chibnall is all about soapy uh, elements. I think that that pregnancy, I don't know what, well, I have a feeling that <clears throat> that child is somehow linked to this story. It's an important child, isn't it? Yeah. I don't think it's yeah. the speculation that I've seen all week that um, Vinda and Belle are are Doctor Who's parents. Oh, that grief. Absolute rubbish, that is. I, I he's controversial, various, but he ain't that controversial. Various, yeah. Various people have worked themselves up into a lather, into such a lather about that. They're determined, almost determined that it's, um, not that it's going to happen, but how disappointed they already are that the possibility that it might possibly happen. <laughs> Of course, it could very much be that we'll hit episode six and a, and a lovely baby is born and they're just happy together. And yeah, I'm 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 quite happy for that to happen. Actually, I don't I don't really mind either way as long as as long as it's healthy. That's fine. Who cares? Yeah, yeah. But I, I agree but, that, that it it's. But then again, it could be that it's it's set up to be significant. But then we've seen the trailers with the Cybermen and we thought, whoa, Cybermen, lots of oh no, actually not. So it could be yeah. wrong footing yet again. I mean, for something that, that seems as significant 
and it is a significant event. We don't know how significant it will be in the ter- in the in the scheme of the story. Uh, and I've only got one more thing to say, and that is a warning to Chris Chibnall that if anything happens to Carvanista, anything at all, I'm coming for you, mate. All right. <laughs> I love him. Joe I is keeping Chris I'll... Chibnall on a very short leash. Oh, very good. <laughs> I loved. I loved that after the first episode, there was a the sort of a divide between people talking about the plot and what how it was set up and everything and then the rest of us are going does that mean we've all got our own space dog this is fabulous (laughs) (laughs) you know mine's gonna be like a cockapoo or something like that yeah and i've got a golden retriever All right, that concludes our discussion of Once Upon a Time, but I want to go off topic for a moment and talk about a friend of mine that we lost this week. Dave Adler was a fixture in Doctor Who fandom here in New York and almost everywhere else. If I went to any Doctor Who convention over the past 10 years, Dave was there. He was a distinctive figure who attached enough ribbons to his convention badge to form a chain of Tom Baker scarf-length proportions. He was uh, here in New York at Who. He was in Los Angeles at every Gallifrey one that I ever went to. Now, conventions can be crowded, raucous affairs where you're surrounded by, especially in Los Angeles, over 3,000 fans in the same hotel. And the hotel lobby is usually overrun with people for the entire run of the convention. But you always knew where you were if Dave Adler was at your convention. If you ever needed to orient yourself in the lobby, just look for the biggest knot of people and Dave was always there at the center of it. He was a universal connector. He seemed to know every single fan at any given convention. He made all the introductions. And if he had any character flaws, I've yet to find one after 20 years of knowing him. Dave and I first met through a Doctor Who fan chat room on IRC, probably in the late 1990s. And when I came back to New York after law school, I soon got to meet him in person. And he and I attended far too many sci-fi and genre movies to count, including the theatrical release of Power of the Daleks in 2016. And I think my favorite memory of Dave is the time we went to see Star Trek Beyond, thinking it was going to be a J.J. Abrams hate watch, but instead just wound up being a really good movie. Dave knew, like I said, probably about 6,000 people, but he always had time to talk to me or join me if I was sitting alone in a convention hotel restaurant. And he never, ever declined an offer to go see a movie with me. Dave passed away earlier this week after a prolonged illness taken from us far too soon at age 57. This coming weekend is the annual L.I. Who convention, and I have no frame of reference for going to a con unless he was there. And I hope there's going to be an empty chair in the hotel lobby in his honor. No one is ever going to be able to fill the void that he left behind. May his memory be a blessing. As always, thank you for joining us on the Trap One podcast. Our creator and executive producer is Mark, who also edited this episode. You can find him on Twitter at Quark McMalice, Quark as in the Dominators, Malice as in the Awakening, and Mick as in Crimin. Simon, where can our listeners find you? Um, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Cy underscore Heart. And do you have any projects that you want to plug? Any new podcasts? Well... I do have I do have a podcast I can plug. So, um, yeah, I am part of the creative team on Maximum Power, the Blake Seven podcast, and yeah, we're currently um, 
about that and around where are we up to. Um, episode 10 of Series A of Blake 7, Project Avalon, is our latest episode. Um, it'll be breakdown this week, this coming weekend. And yeah, please, if you're a fan of Blake 7 and you like an irreverent podcast, then we're the people for you. And Lucy, where can we find you online and on audio? Um, well, you can find me on audio when people invite me on their podcasts. I don't have one of my own. Um, you can find me online under a heap of wool, usually. Um, at, I'm <laughs> at Lucy McCall um, on Twitter and um, various versions of that name on, on Instagram and Facebook as well. And, yeah, just generally knitting or writing niche John Pertwee era fan fiction. And Joe, considering that we're all of us just small pieces of the Joe Forge podcasting multiverse, <laughs> please, please let us know all the places we can find you. Bearing in mind, we only have 12 hours of recording time left. So please keep it expeditious. I mean, I don't know what you're talking about. I've never podcasted before. So this is my first one. <laughs> when we pressed play on Zencaster, we slipped into an alternative universe. <laughs> I'm virgin podcaster Joe. No, you can. Um, I'm on Twitter at Doc Oho. Um, I have three podcasts on the go now. Um, one with my friend Jack, the Nine Will Be Praised, uh, which is where I think you first caught wind of me, Jason. Um, a hamster with a blunt pen knife, of which you have all contributed to that. And I'm just going to quickly plug. Oh my word, which one's the Warriors of the Deep for you, Jason? Uh, your very first one, the Leisure Hive for you, Cy. And oh, Lucy of the two, man, they were both so good. Um, the Claws of Axos for you, Lucy, um, of which were all fantastic. And um, a new one that which has just started called Untitled Star Trek Project with my friend Nathan Bottomley. Um, which has just got going there as well. So there's there's plenty of me about, unfortunately. And I am on Twitter at Doctor Who Novels. That's Dr. Who Novels. And under the hashtag Doctor Who Pilgrimage, that's Dr. Who Pilgrimage. Tonight, I have reached the end of the classic series with parts one and two of Survival. Uh, I will then be doing a brief tour through the wilderness years. And then at some point by the end of November, I'll be starting on the new series and going as far as I can. Please also check out my new solo podcast, Doctor Who Literature, which is currently available on Anchor, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and hopefully a few more podcatchers before we meet again. And of course, through my Twitter handle, the second episode of that, which is my discussion of Doctor Who and the Zarbi, the 1965 novelization, will be released this coming Sunday. You can find Trap One on Twitter, at Trap One underscore. That's at Trap One underscore symbol. And you can find all past episodes on trapone.podbean.com or on your podcatcher of choice. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next week with a new panel to discuss Flux, Chapter 4, The Village of the Angels. Have a great night, everybody. Bye. <laughs> Thank you.